0: Hello, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather. This is the podcast where we explore the Earth's atmosphere and how we get all connected through the weather and climate. We are your hosts, Gemma and Ashling. We're both meteorologists and weather presenters and have been working in weather now for over 15 years. If you're new to the podcast, we are so thrilled to have you here with us today. And if you are coming back to us, it's amazing to know that we have your company again. And as always, we hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more and then a little something about how the weather and climate can impact
1: our daily lives. We're a little we're a little bowled over by our guest today. Her name is Kirsten Neuschaffer and actually we're in a different time zone at the moment so we're very grateful for her time because we know it's quite late. We met her at the Blue Earth Summit listening to her talking not only about sailing around the world but many other achievements in her life She is an incredible person, we're very excited to be talking to her tonight, but I'm going to give you a little quick intro of what you have achieved so far in your life, which is pretty, pretty remarkable and a little bit difficult to know where to start, which order do we do all of this in, but we'll start with the Golden Globe race that was in 2022. It's a solo around the world sailing race, started September 4th, 2022 lasted until the 27th of April, 2023. So it was 233 days, 20 hours and 43 minutes and 47 seconds at sea on your own, having won a race aside from one moment where you saved somebody's life during the race and still managed to win the race as well. Just, I mean, this is just absolutely incredible. And not only that, you're the only woman to have ever done that, the only South African to have ever done that. You've also cycled from Europe to South Africa just because you felt like it, which is 1,500 kilometers and just many other amazing things. But you professionally started sailing in 2016 and you've specialized in high altitude sailing, taking cruise everywhere. You've been on the telly. You've done it all. So we're really, really happy that you're chatting to us tonight. So first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Really nice to be here. I think it's a cool podcast. Oh, thank you. Uh, But we're just going to start. What our very first question is, where was that first spark of joy for you where you thought to yourself, I think I might just get a boat and start sailing?
2: Um, I think that started in childhood already Um, for two reasons. That is, I grew up inland, but we used to go to the coast on holidays and I absolutely knew that I was in my element when I was by the sea. And, um, and then... When I was a little bit older, I don't know, maybe eight or something like that, I had a group of friends that had a wee tiny little dinghy on the Haiterbeersport Dam, which is a green, slimy piece of water inland in South Africa. And we used to go sailing there, and I I just loved it. So I thought to myself back then already, it would, would be quite nice to take to the seas like a seafarer someday.
1: <laughs> so maybe then I should start back before that. So what made you think, actually... I know I heard this beautiful quote from you, which I, I say to many people, actually, since I've heard it from you. But I'm going to let you say it again. Um, So you decided to cycle from Europe to South Africa on a bicycle by yourself. Took you about I a year. Did. I did. Indeed. What made you do that?
2: Well, I um, it was another childhood thing. I wanted to explore the African continent because it was the continent I was most passionate about, seeing as I was born on it. And when I got to the age of 22, I just thought, you know what, now I have enough time, I have enough money to buy myself a basic bicycle with basic spares. And I have enough, potentially enough mechanical knowledge to fix a bicycle underway, which I wouldn't have had for a Land Rover, for example. So I thought, well, let's do it. Let's get the bike and let's start pedaling.
1: So I don't know if you remember this, but at the conference, you said, um, somebody said to you, no one's ever done that before. And you said, well, I'm going to do it. And that's it. Well,
2: I mean, it's kind of the thing that people would say it's not doable. And then I'd say, have you tried it? And they'd say, no, we haven't tried it because it's not something you just try. It's like, well, how would you know if it is or isn't doable if you haven't tried it? So,
1: I love that. I just love that. Absolutely love that. Have you tried? No, well, then love it. Absolutely love it. Um, so you've been sailing you've also cycled so you must have a really good knowledge of the weather because to do both of them you need to be prepared physically for many different reasons so where did your knowledge of weather come from
2: well I think I I actually always enjoyed um, you know lessons on meteorology and stuff already as a child um, in, in geography classes And I really started applying it for the first time when I uh, started working as a guide up in the Arctic on Svalbard, uh, where you had to look at the clouds and say, well, I think these clouds are sort of saying that this is going to come next. There's a wind coming through, potentially there's going to be rain or whatever else it's going to be because you were living outside most of the time. And I kind of think that's almost something that to a more or lesser degree comes naturally that when you're leading a real outdoors lifestyle is that you start observing the weather. And especially back in the day, we didn't have all these weather apps and we weren't connected 24-7. So you couldn't look at Windy to see what was going to happen. You'd be looking at the clouds and any other signs.
1: Yeah the, the fundamental of every science just observation. So obviously it becomes very natural to you. Although me and Jabba have a theory that anybody who works outside, whether you're farming or doing what you're doing, you just know so intimately what your weather systems are and why you do or don't trust something or what gives you a icky feeling when you see something or something some pattern that you don't identify yeah for with.
2: sure and there's so many little signs you know like I, I I don't know how it is up in Europe but here for example in South Africa if you see a whole lot of swallows flying really low in the evenings it often means that rain is going to be on its way or you see certain insects emerging like a uh, flying ants, that usually means that the rain is on its way because they've picked up some kind of a an environmental cue that has told them now's the time to do whatever it is that you're supposed to do when the rain's about to come. So, so I do agree with you that anyone who does spend a lot of time outside does pick up these little things and perhaps these apps that we have that give us uh, additional weather information aren't necessarily bad because you can combine it with the knowledge that you already have just to understand the bigger system of what's happening. Yeah, I've never heard the swallow one before. That's really really interesting. I've never heard that one before. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've got uh, little creatures up north there that do similar kind of things when it's you know time for some kind of a weather pattern to to emerge. So yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. rather worryingly, I have desperate lack of worms in my garden which may not seem like a big deal but where are they which hmm. means that there's no birds eating them but I've just noticed in the last year a severe lack of worms but anyway I digress you mentioned uh Spe- so mm-hmm. you've you must know then the the change that's happening there it's I mean crazy. I, have, I haven't
2: been there for many many years I was last there when I was 19 or 20 years old so we're looking at about 11 you know 20 21 or 22 years since I was last there and I would imagine that if I went back uh, it would look very very different I would imagine the glaciers have receded but I haven't been there to really see it myself so
1: yeah it's had a lot of attention over over the over the last year Um, when you were growing up who Mm -hmm. was your biggest champ who used to champion you
2: um, I had a friend, he was actually um the older brother of my best friend, and he really left an impression on me in my life, because he was the can-do-everything person, you know, he'd come up with these crazy ideas where he'd say, uh, let's go sail from Maputo and Mozambique to Anyaka Island on something similar to a Hobie Cat, and he wouldn't even have a trailer, so he'd weld some sort of a contraption onto his utility vehicle and then he'd transport the thing like that um, and he'd do it with the most meager of means but nothing wasn't possible to him and I think that left quite an impression on me because he used to take us with on a whole lot of his adventures and we'd have a lot of fun so it was a good what, thing.
1: What does he make of what you've achieved now? Um, I'm not
2: sure I think maybe in in some ways he's ever so slightly envious, but then again, he's achieved, he's achieved an incredible thing too. And that is that he became a wildlife vet and he's, he participates in these amazing uh, research projects, which must be incredibly rewarding. So I think on the one hand, he he chose the route of studying, which if you've invested so much to study, you've kind of got a responsibility to use uh, whatever you use your education. Whereas I just chose the more free spirited way. So, um, yeah, I guess it's got its pros and its cons.
1: <laughs> Talk us through a little bit about the Golden Globe race. I mean, you were at sea for 233 days. How on earth do you summarise that? What was it like to sail through all of that water? I mean, I just don't even know. Where do you start with the question?
2: Well, I think the concept of it is sometimes more, more difficult than the reality, Because the the concept of it is that you're imagining this incredibly long journey of a lot of time that you're going to spend out there and all these different kind of weather patterns and climate zones, you know, from passing through the tropics around the equator to the southern ocean kind of storms and whatever else you're going to encounter. You and think of all these things and you think, wow, there's a lot of obstacles and it's a very, very long way. But once you start doing it, it just kind of goes day by day and it becomes your routine eventually. At least it was like that for me. I'm sure, you know, people react differently to an adventure like that. But for me, it was like it became part of my routine. So in some sense, the longer I was on the trip, the easier it became, except when things were tough. You know, there were moments when things were tough, where you thought, well, it would have been nice to have a shipmate now to help me to whatever it is I have to do or while away the boredom of being stuck in the doldrums or whatever it is but as long as the boat was moving and things were going the way they were supposed to it, it, it kind of was felt good. Did, did you ever feel lost? Um, not really lost in the sense that I didn't know where I was or in the sense that I felt that my life or the safety of my boat was at severe risk uh, but I can say that getting stuck without wind in the doldrums, where you know that it's an area where you could be stuck for a very long time and you have no weather information, so you don't know how long the calm is going to last, and you don't know where the other competitors are, that was very demotivating. That was just a moment where it felt like incredible irony, because I knew that before I got to the doldrums, I was at the head of the fleet. And then I just had this feeling when I picked the doldrums up already, the south of the equator, I just had a feeling this this is not good news. So that that was definitely a difficult moment.
0: But anyone but, that doesn't know, can you explain where the doldrums are in relation to sort of the world?
2: Yeah. So um they it's called the intertropical convergence zone. So uh, you really find it in the tropics, um, where you've got the northeast trades and the southeast trades that kind of converge on the equator and they're fighting for dominion, if you could call it that way or describe it that way. So um, so you get this sort of uh, windless zone where uh, the air is rising because it's so very hot and you get a kind of a windless low pressure. But it's quite a violent area as well because in spite of the fact that there's no wind, you get some really violent squalls and thunderstorms and lightning storms and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I, I guess it's always been a, a sort of a difficult zone for any sailor, especially the sailors of old that had no weather information and didn't know how long they might be stuck there without water or whatever the case may be.
0: If you're in a boat and there's a thunderstorm, what do you do?
2: Um, I mean, you can sometimes avoid them because you can sometimes see those big cumulonimbus clouds on the horizon. And especially like at night, they are black right down to the horizon. If you have a bit of moonlight, for example, you can see it and you can see if there's thunder and lightning. And you can try to see a little bit what course those squalls are taking and also your boat's course to get a little bit away from them. But you certainly can't always avoid them. And uh, one of the things you do do is uh, if you've got any portable electronics, like, for example, uh, an emergency position locating beacon or an EPIRB or a satellite phone or anything like that, you put it inside an oven because because the oven's metallic. So it's a Faraday compartment. So if lightning strikes, it can't actually get into that closed oven space. So at least you can save your handheld electronic devices because all your other inbuilt electronic devices on the boat will probably get fried. And then the other thing you can do is where where the stays, the shrouds that hold the mast up, come down on the sides, you can hang some copper wires over to make contact with the water so that if it does strike, it grounds itself rather than the electricity is there for longer than it needs to and does more damage. But other than that, there's not really that much you can do other than hope it's not going to strike you. And I've been surprisingly close to thunderstorms without them actually having hit. So knock on wood.
1: (laughs) This is mad. I just can't imagine. (laughs) Imagine that, like, just that that's your thought process. You have to be so quick about everything that you think about.
2: Yeah, you do. Like taking evasive action is always the best. Um, and I've I've never experienced it at sea, but uh, uh, an electrician or an electronics guy actually told me that uh, lightning will only strike if it's somehow attracted by the length of the antenna. The antenna in this case being the mast. Um, and that if you need to get into the electrical cell for it to actually strike. And he said to me, if you get into an electrical cell, the hair on your arms and everywhere will stand up. And it's happened to me once on land before where it wasn't cold and there wasn't anything freaking me out, but all my hair was standing on end and there was a big electrical storm brewing. So it is quite interesting, this thing of actually getting into the cell.
1: Wow, the physiology of it that's incredible. I didn't actually, I didn't know that. I know a lot about thunderstorms. I didn't know that. That's unbelievable. I'm glad I've never (laughs) I guess that's going into whichever. the field of
2: electrophysics. Already.
1: Yeah, it's incredible. Um, yeah. How, how did it feel, first of all, winning the race, but also being the only woman to ever do that?
2: Winning the race felt great because I had set out with the, the goal to try my very best to win. And I, I say try to win rather than to win because I knew that the chances of not winning were very big because there's just so much that could happen that could stop you from finishing the race or make someone else get there before you. Um, but so when I did win, I was incredibly happy because it had been my goal. Um but the woman aspect was of lesser importance to me because as I always say to people, I was born as a woman and I didn't really have to do anything to be a woman, but I did have to work incredibly hard to prepare my boat and then sail it through that race. So so yeah. I mean obviously secondary it was secondary to me, let's put it that way the woman part
1: yeah it's I find it a really interesting conversation at the moment you know because there's just not quite the quantity of like women and girls doing all of that type of thing so have you have you been asked to speak much about it or to encourage you, yeah, you know guess... the girls and you know how do you, how do you feel that you probably don't realize that you're a role model but you are yeah I mean
2: that that's taking a bit of time to sink in for me Um but on the other hand I do think it's a pity that there aren't more women, uh, you know, doing this kind of sport, or even if it's not in a race, even just working in the industry, because I don't, I really honestly don't feel that women are inferior because, you know, I don't know what it's like sailing in Imoka, for example, because they're very big boats and possibly you need more physical strength. But when it comes to sailing the boats that I've sailed all my life, You don't need the extra physical strength. You just need to be able to grind a winch. And obviously, oftentimes it's about the judgment. What judgment call are you going to make? What mental strength are you going to have? And how are you going to read a situation and react to it? And and when it comes to those things, I really don't see why there should be any difference between um, male or female. And I just think it's it's just a traditional thing that men used to go out on adventures and men used to go out to, to see... Uh, and women didn't, possibly because they were looking after the children at home or something like that. But in the day and age that we're living in where you you don't have those or those roles, in my opinion, shouldn't be that defined anymore. I think more women should be participating in these things. So I think it's more a traditional sort of social construct that we need to get past.
1: Yeah. And I do agree with you as well. I mean, you want that completely on your skill and yes, if, I know what you mean, if you're secondarily sort of like a, a female that you did that amazing, an amazing task. But I guess for everyone else looking at you, you're the first to do that, which is it actually for me, it's a big, you know, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal and probably to a lot of other young sailors as well who are, you know, starting to come through and being like, well, of course I could do that. You know, like yeah. that shift, that shift in mindset.
2: Well, I, if that, if it has that uh, um sort of effect, then
0: great. I'm interested to know, how do you pass the days when you're there? Because obviously you're doing maintenance to the boat as well, but there must be mm-hmm. other long periods of time when there's you're just sailing and enjoying the scenery. Like, how do you pass the time? Because it's yeah. a lot of time to be away. It
2: is. And I've always found when you go out to sea, for me more so sometimes than being on land, you need a routine um, at sea because otherwise the day can get long and one blue day can very much resemble the next. But my routine, especially on the race, revolved a lot about uh, around the celestial navigation. Because, uh, for example, in order to accurately navigate with a sextant and a compass, you also need um, accurate time. And we were only allowed mechanical time pieces. So we'd have to get a time signal off the SSB radio. And uh, that's also an atmospheric thing. So the ionosphere or whatever it is that these waves travel on are affected by whether it's day, daytime or nighttime. So for me, one of the best times to get a clear signal was early in the morning, uh, just after sunrise. So then I'd get my time signal, I'd set my wristwatch to the exact time, and then I'd get a sextant sight. Uh, so that that kind of started my day with the routine. Then later on, you p- plan a noon sight into your day. And if you felt like you needed to be even more accurate, you would plan in an afternoon sight. Um, and then for the rest, it was a question of, uh, keeping healthy, eating properly, keeping the boat in tip top shape from maintenance down to keeping the boat clean. Uh, getting a bit of rest if it was pleasant conditions. Then resting when you can, so that if you do have to stay up at night for any reason, you'll uh, be well rested. And then, you know, yeah, obviously enjoying enjoying the time. You know, sometimes maybe climbing up the mast if it's calm conditions or. If it's in the tropics, having a drag behind the back of the boat just so that you can cool down a little bit and have a little bit of adrenaline. If there's no wind, maybe jump overboard and have a swim. And then I did read a lot. I really did read a lot of books.
0: You must have seen some amazing wildlife while you were out in the boat as well. Yeah,
2: yeah, you do see interesting things. Uh, one of the nicer moments in terms of wildlife was uh, approaching um, the South African coastline because it was at the season when the whales all come to the coastline to uh, you know, carve and mate and everything else. So there were a lot of humpback whales and I got there on a calm moonlit evening and the whales were surfacing right next to me and the spray from the, you know, spout was sort of wafting over the boat. And, um, and that was really special. You just see these massive glistening creatures in the moonlight. Um, and then the next morning there were whales, seals and dolphins all around the boat. So there were these three species. I didn't have any wind, so I was just drifting. And um, it's really frustrating as a sailor not to have wind, but it's also interesting because it it draws the animals closer. Out of curiosity, as much as we're curious about them, I find marine animals, when they're in the water, they don't have any fear. So they often come very close. And from the tiniest little fish, you know, if you jump overboard with a mask on, you see these tiny little fish uh, up to these massive whales sometimes. So um, it is very special. And then one thing, I almost always had was a, some form of a seabird. That was
0: really? ho-
1: amazing. Yeah, the, the whole what's... way around, you had some form of a seabird.
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. down south it was always a type of a, an albatross. You know, sometimes it was the beautiful wandering albatross, but it could have been a different type of albatross, or it was a prion, or it. You know, in the tropics you'd get these brown boobies or something. They'd sometimes even land on the boat at night, um, and a variety of different birds that I can't even identify so I'm kind of sorry I didn't have a, a a bird book a marine bird book on board so that I could have identified more of the birds that I saw but there were almost always birds around of some or other description
1: I don't know why I find that so fascinating you know that's I mean it is know.
2: because some of those birds spend spend 80 or more percent of their life gliding above yeah. or floating on the water which is pretty amazing for a bird <laughs>
0: Do you get given like, weather data when you're out on the boat? Like, do you get provided that or is that all up to you to look at the skies and work out what's going to happen?
2: So on the race, we weren't allowed any modern weather forecasting technology. So we, we could only really use what you could use in 1968. So we were allowed to get weather forecasts from marine VHF. Uh, which would work if you were right next to land and within range because VHF kind of works on line of sight, so you had to be close enough. Or you could have you know, called up a ship and asked them if they had any weather information, Uh, but that's also kind of difficult because they're not concentrating on the wind as you are um, as a sailor. And then you could also get weather information off the SSB radio, which obviously works over a much bigger distance, but the problem is that a lot of the shore stations don't broadcast on SSB anymore because it's quite antiquated. Um, and then we were also allowed weather fax, which gives you the normal synoptic charts that you then interpret yourself. But again, um, a lot of the stations don't don't uh, send that frequency out anymore for the broadcast because very, very few people still use weather fax. I mean, you, can, you can't really even get fax paper anymore. So um, the weather information was very, very limited. So I'd say, Eighty percent of the time, you were going on the barometer. So the barometer is something that you logged all the time because that gives you the trends, and and then watching the sky and the swell. Like a, a big, uh, you know, a really big, long period swell coming in from a certain angle might uh, indicate that there's a disturbance coming up from behind or from the south or something like that. So there are quite a few signs that can give you a clue to what what might be happening
0: i got
1: to be really fully in tune with what's going on that's crazy stressed <laughs> yeah also just really remarkable as well because you know the intelligence that takes and I'm sure as in when you're tired and I'm sure you've had moments where you're I just an exhaustion I wouldn't even I don't even know and needing to constantly have all like, constantly be switched on to absolutely everything just in case whilst interpreting all that as well and knowing that all of these micro things that you were doing and making decisions and ultimately for you led on to to winning to winning the race
2: i think if you if you hear it all spoken of in one go like this it, it possibly sounds more complicated than it is because you do have a lot of time to observe which is actually the nice thing about going on to a race like that without a screen giving you the weather info is that you're forced to be out there and to observe and i think some of it comes intuitively you know, almost maybe like a farmer or like you were saying, again, anyone that works outdoors sometimes just intuitively can interpret the weather. So, And knowing the, the the global systems helps hugely as well, because, for example, you know, the barometers dropping in the Southern Ocean, you know, the wind's going to set in from the northwest. And when the barometer starts stabling out, the wind's going to suddenly switch to the west and then it's going to go southwest. So you kind of know exactly how to interpret the patterns that are going to come your way. So all those little things, the cumulative knowledge over years does make the difference then in the end. So.
1: Yeah. So much admiration for you. Honestly, it's just, it's just incredible. What, what's, um what's, what's next for you? What, how, how do you, how do you go? What do you do next? What are you going to do next?
2: Um, it's, it's a difficult thing actually. Um, Sometimes coming back from, you know, a project that's been a four year focus is, is a hard thing because it suddenly comes to an end and then you, you're you standing there a little bit thinking what next. Um, it's also a nice phase, it's a karma phase where you can reinvent yourself but um, at this stage I think I'm, I'm happy to share the experience I had with those who are interested in it. Um, I might think of sitting down and writing it all down because I know that in 10 years time I'm going to have forgotten a lot of the details. So whether I publish it or not, at least I can read it in 10 or 15 years time and say, oh, that's right. I forgot that. That's how it went. Um, and it's a nice way to digest a very large experience. And then the other thing is that I've, you know, the whole project with preparing the boat and everything um, during COVID and everything kind of stopped me from coming home. So I was almost away from home for four years. So now I'm I'm also feeling the strain of catching up with all the things that I've neglected back home a little bit. So
1: <laughs> And and COVID just changed the world, just just changed yeah. the world. Yeah.
2: But I I on the same token, I'm already starting to get itchy feet. Like I'm I'm feeling the desire to go on another trip, another adventure, shall I say?
1: Oh, we can't wait to see what that's gonna be. I'm just excited I mean, I can only imagine people that you give this talk to. I mean, when we, we were just that whole when you were giving that talk, it was so silent in that room everyone was really listening I mean it's incredible you need to write it down and yeah and like you say a lovely way to di- to digest all of that um were you ever frightened
2: um on the race itself I wasn't really ever frightened where I thought now nah, things might go seriously wrong uh, there were moments when I was anxious when I realized you know it is pretty rough and with the types of swell, you know, breaking over the stern or whatever, there's a chance that something might break. But I always had good confidence and good trust that the boat was going to make it through. Uh, But I was, on the other hand, I I was really anxious, borderline scared when I left the coast of Nova Scotia for the first proper passage I was going to do on Minnehaha, my boat, because I had to leave it. We were going deeper and deeper into the winter and into the Canadian winter. It was getting stormier and stormier. It was getting cold. The morning I left that dock, it was so cold I had to boil water to defrost the the mooring lines and stuff like that. And I knew that I was going into a storm. It was a relatively mild storm compared to the others I'd seen, but I was going out into storm conditions for my first proper sea trial. And I must say, I was really, really anxious, if not scared. And then all those things build up, and then I was seasick and everything else. So it, it was a rough start, and maybe it was the best because you get thrown into the deep end, and after that it's like, oh, after that we'll we'll be fine with anything else. So you
0: know, Yeah. So was that before you'd even start you that's before you started the the actual race, such as you got taking your boat over to, to start?
2: Yeah, I, I actually took a detour via South Africa. So instead of sailing from Canada to France I sailed first back home because again I I hadn't been home for a long time and I didn't want to leave the boat in Canada at risk of not getting in there if something strange happened with the pandemic and there were more lockdowns and stuff like that I thought if I leave I leave with the boat and I wanted to get home so I thought well I don't have much time I better set sail and and be quick about it so
1: yeah. I just don't think you realize how remarkable you are (laughs) it's just unbelievable listening to you honestly. Well, thank you. It's just incredible. It's honestly absolutely incredible human. Incredible human. I was just wondering, was there any part of the race where
0: the weather was like especially bad and dangerous?
2: Um, there was one storm that came through uh, and, and the rules were that if it's really, a, if they think your life is in danger, they will give you some storm warning. Uh, I kind of knew it was coming already before they had told me because I was listening to the weather forecast from New Zealand. So I knew what was coming up behind and that one could have gotten bad if I had been further south it, I could have been in a really bad position so it was uh, it was a time when I actually purposely went north to run away from the worst part of the storm you know to get as far away from the eye of the storm as possible and to get out of the dangerous quadrant of the storm uh, but once I had had uh, you know the best part of 24 hours or more to run north, I felt quite confident that we weren't going to get into the really, really bad zone of it.
1: God, race against time, literally. Right. We're going to have to move on for a little bit, but I really just want to ask you one thing about (laughs) just about the guy's life that you saved. I didn't want to mispronounce it. So let me just do it. It was a Tapio Lettinen.
2: Tapio tapio Lettinen, yeah.
1: Can you just tell us, like, I mean, and also you gave him some gin when you met him. I mean, just 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 indulge us. Tell us the story.
2: Well, we we all all the competitors got a message via satellite to say that his boat had sunk. And I knew that I must be close to him because um I'd gone past him well, I'd gone through the Cape Town photo gate just before him. And I knew he was right behind me. So by the time his boat had sunk, you know, it was uh, days and days later. So I didn't really know at all where he was, but I assumed I was the closest person to him. So when I got the message, I phoned and I said, is there anything I can do? And they said, yes, you're you're closer than anyone else right now to him. And and I kind of knew that already. And, you know, you think of a, a fellow sailor being in a tiny little life raft on what's quite a big rolling ocean. The southern Indian Ocean is usually pretty rough ocean. You you don't really think of anything else at that point anymore. You just want to get to the person and help them. Because you know how you yourself would hope that other people would react in the same way if you were in their situation. But what I didn't know is, because I got to him about 24 hours later, I didn't know what, what mind frame he would be in. Because he'd seen his boat go down. He'd lost everything on board the boat other than... His survival suit and one basic little grab bag so he had nothing with him and he was no longer in the race and for me personally I would have been pretty miserable and depressed under those conditions and he was just making jokes and laughing he was very happy to see me of course but you know he was there was not a hint of negativity or sad or feeling sorry for himself or anything like that it was just he was happy he was happy to be alive he was happy to be aboard Minahaha. he was taking everything as though well this is another experience in life and one can just learn from it and see the bright side and enjoy it yeah and then i did ask him when he finally came aboard which took a fair bit of joking you know first he was saying i don't want to you know encroach on your privacy and stuff like that <laughs> then he came aboard and i thought well he hasn't eaten or, or drunk anything for the last 24 hours So I offered him food and water and stuff. And he said, no, I'm fine. Don't worry. And then I said, well, how about how about a rum? And he said, sure, I'll definitely, you know, toast over rum with you. So that's how it went. It's just
1: I just was so mesmerized by that story. First of all, that you found him. It's just it's just incredible. It's just a marvel, an absolute marvel. So Gemma, I think we're going to have to move on. So we are going to move on now to our get to know me round. It's a
0: really quick fire round. A few of them are weather related and then some Mm -hmm. of them are just really random. So we always start by asking our guests what their favourite season is. Oh, that's a difficult one. I think down here in South Africa, I, I, I really
2: like May, which is sort of autumn and going into winter because the strong winds start calming down and the real harsh heat starts calming down and everything just becomes a little bit milder. And then the other thing is you start getting the big, the bigger swell from the winter storms pushing onto the coastline, so it's a nice season to go surfing.
1: Another reason to just throw yourself into the water. <laughs> if you had to
0: choose, what would you prefer, the beach or the mountains? Oh, that's difficult too. Um, that's a really difficult one, but I think... I'm
2: a I'm a beach person. I need the sea. So possibly I'd choose the beach if I really had to make that choice. Yeah.
0: We'll be kind and we can we'll we'll let you have both of them. It's fine. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs>
2: a mountain right next to the
0: beach is optimal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you could have a superpower, what would it be? A
1: superpower. Um, I think
0: breathing
2: underwater would be a pretty nice thing to be able to do
1: no one has said that that's a great answer i didn't think of that that would be amazing i think we could we 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 did breathe underwater didn't we billions of years ago yeah i guess we did i guess like we might have had some ancestors that flew as well
0: but yeah (laughs) we've got a couple of more questions this is one of our more random questions Mm -hmm. if you were a fruit or vegetable what would you be um
2: if i was a fruit or a vegetable what would i be maybe a nice avocado high up in a tree
1: just soaking up the sun also one of the only pieces of food in the world that you could survive on if you just didn't have anything else an avocado is every single essential fat in it everything you need to survive They are. Well, I didn't even know that, but I sure like eating them. (laughs) This makes sense that you like them. They are delicious Yeah, they're all rounders.
0: They're all rounders. (laughs) Yeah. If you can invite one person to dinner, it can be anybody at all from any historical time frame or even a fictional character. Who would it be? I
2: would invite Nelson Mandela to dinner. He's definitely someone I would have really, really loved to have met. I'm usually not really too fussed about meeting, you know, celebrities or prominent characters or figures in history or anything like that. But he's definitely one I would have liked to have met.
1: Yeah, I, incredible one. He probably on he's probably on many, many people's lists would have mm-hmm. changed the world. Yeah, sure it did.
0: Sure changed my country. So Yeah. Um we've never asked anyone this before, but as I was as we were talking, I just it just came to me. But what's one piece of advice you would give somebody else? Um,
2: I would tell someone who's wanting to undertake a very long journey, whether that's in a literal or figurative sense, you know, it might be a big project that they want to undertake. I don't know, building a house from scratch or whatever it is. I would tell them not to look towards the end goal, the destination or whatever it is they're trying to achieve. And not to let themselves be overwhelmed by doing that. I'd say take it a step at a time. And eventually you'll have laid enough bricks or done enough steps You have done the journey or built the house or done the project that you wanted to. I That's think I needed to hear that
1: today. Do you know that? That is lovely advice yeah there's
0: there's that image on social media that goes around and it's um a couple of dots and it says the start point and the end point but then when it zooms out it shows you like all the little points along the way and how you are making progress but it Mm -hmm. just takes a time it takes time to make that progress it's just little steps over and like over a longer period of time I really like that image it's sort of it's a nice one to see
2: I mean it's a bit of a cliche it's a bit of the journey of a thousand miles begins with one step but it's true when you look, when you project too far ahead, it, it can be overwhelming sometimes. So. Yeah,
1: and yeah. I always enjoyed the, enjoy the journey as well. It's good to have yeah. a journey, but you don't want to know what it looks like because then you won't enjoy it when you get there. That's so.
2: true. And then the other thing is time goes really quickly. So even if you think it's quite a long-term goal in the blink of an eye, that time would have already passed. So just as yeah. well, enjoy the journey, like you said, <laughs>
0: And then our final question is: What's one thing that you wish everybody knew about sailing? Oh,
2: okay, I have to think about it now.
0: Hmm, the one thing,
2: because there's so many things. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> I always feel really bad asking. This people is This is why question you need to the write end. the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe that's the... what
1: you should call it: the one thing I wish everybody knew about sailing.
2: Hmm, maybe, <laughs> then I'll have to, then I'll have to give you that answer after the book, uh, the one thing, let me think now, um, okay, well, I don't know if this is a good one or not, but the one thing I wish everyone knew is um how important it is to know your boat inside out, before you even set out to sea, you know, leave the port, that you really know every little nut and bolt on your boat and where everything belongs and how everything gets put together again because there's it's very likely that you're going to have a moment out there to see where you're going to be grateful for that knowledge
1: if that is not a great metaphor for life as well it really I guess is it's not always easy but
2: <laughs> I mean as much as you always want to know everything certain things you're only going to figure out while you're out there <laughs>
0: but, yeah yeah
1: In another world, that's like, keep your friends close and your enemies closer kind of thing. (laughs) Does everybody name their boat as
0: well? Is that a thing that everyone does?
2: Yeah, I think everyone, I mean, boats have to legally have a name. A registered boat needs to have a name, so you need to name it. And um, I guess if you're building a boat from scratch, you'd probably try and give it the most meaningful name. But it's interesting how boat names go through trends as well, like you know, for example, I was working in a on a fishing boat for a while and all the fishermen, because they were all kind of old captains and stuff, they'd all named their boats, all had a female name and it was usually their wife's name or their daughter's name or something like that. And then, you know, the, the later guys were naming their boats other things like seize the day or something. I don't know, you know, like different names. So, yeah, I think. And there's all this stuff about you're not supposed to change a boat's name. And if you do, you're supposed to do the appropriate ceremony and stuff to fend off bad luck and all the superstition <laughs> involved around that kind of stuff.
1: So. Yeah, only life is that straightforward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to us this evening. I have loved it. And I'm so grateful for your time. And I really hope that you actually listen back to it and get to hear just how incredibly amazing you are. The one thing that struck me from talking to you is that you just don't seem to realize how cool you are. So thank you so much for chatting to us. Thank
2: you. It's been fun. You know, um, some people think talking about the weather is a boring topic, but it's something (laughs) I can go on for uh, days about. So yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thank you to you two.
0: Well, if you ever want to talk to us more about the weather, we are always here because we love to talk about the weather. Um, if you have enjoyed this podcast, we would love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and share it with everyone that you know. It helps other people find our podcast and then we can share our love of the weather with more people. If you would like to follow us on Instagram, we are for the love of weather. On X, formerly Twitter, we are the number four love of weather. Um, and Kirsten, if everyone wants to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Um, I'm on Facebook under Kirsten
2: Neuschäfer and um, Instagram, Kirsten GGR, and I've got a website, which
1: is KirstenGGR.com. Check out the website. It's pretty amazing.
0: There's gonna be lots of people after this podcast, I think, that are gonna feel inspired to take on a challenge. I know that I I feel very inspired to take on a challenge. And we just hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. Thanks so much for listening, everyone.
1: Bye-bye.